You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you're viewing this live stream. My name is Mike Yaffe, and I am the Vice President of the Middle East North Africa Center at the U.S. Institute of Peace. And I have the pleasure of welcoming you to today's discussion on how Iraq is dealing with reconstruction, reform efforts, and its recovery from conflict with ISIS. We are pleased to be able to live stream today's efforts and event in both English and Arabic. And on behalf of USIP, I want to extend a very warm welcome to His Excellency, the Minister of Planning of Iraq, Dr. Khaled Najm, and to Her Excellency, the Minister of Migration and Displacement, Ms. Evan Jabru. Both are part of an Iraqi delegation that is visiting Washington this week, and we are very grateful that they have been able to carve out time to join us today during what I am sure is a very, very busy week for them. USIP has a long relationship with Minister Jabru, beginning with from our time working with her when she was a civil society leader prior to her becoming minister. We also had the pleasure of, of hosting Minister Jabru last August for a public event at USIP. So it's good seeing you again, Minister. And Minister Najm, it's great to host you at USIP for the first time. I sincerely hope that this event will be followed by many more engagements together. We are honored to have both of you with us today to share your insights on the priorities of the Iraqi government and your vision for peace and stability in Iraq. And we would also like to express our deep gratitude to Ambassador Yassim and the Embassy of Iraq in Washington for the continued partnership on this event and many others. There are many issues to discuss when looking at current events in Iraq and where the future and what the future holds for stabilization, reconstruction and reform efforts. Displacement of people in Iraq is one of the biggest issues against the backdrop of economic, political, security and public health challenges. The conflict with ISIS resulted in the displacement of over 5 million Iraqis, close to 15% of the population. Dis the positive news is that through Iraqi and international efforts, millions have been able to return home or to their home provinces. Despite many IDP camp closures occurring in recent months across Iraq, ensuring the safety and sustainability of displaced persons and their reintegration into local communities remains crucial. Unfortunately, many of the displaced people return to destroyed homes and neighborhoods and nearly 1.2 million people remain displaced, including many from ethnic and religious minorities. Most are in need of urgent humanitarian assistance and other forms of support to ensure in a stable and peaceful recovery. And COVID-19 health, the global uh, 19 health crisis significantly complicated the risks faced by these displaced families. We at USIP take pride in being part of the ongoing effort to help people go home. We do this through our work with partners, including in the Iraq government and civil society groups to forge agreements, Iraqi negotiated agreements between local communities that reduce tensions, prevent violence and support the safe and voluntary return 
for displaced Iraqis. We helped forge reconciliation agreements in Tikrit, Hawaja, and Talifar, resulting in the safe return of hundreds of thousands. And today we're working in Nineveh, Ambar, and, ba and Basra provinces. We are especially focused on supporting religious and ethnic minority communities as they recover from the devastation left behind by ISIS. We are cognizant of the difficult challenges ahead, like how to deal with the tens of thousands of ISIS family members and those who are perceived of being affiliated with ISIS, including those being transferred to Iraq from the Al-Hal camp in Syria. These are among the central issues that we'll be discussing today, and I very much look forward to the thoughtful, productive conversation with both of you, Minister Najim and Minister Jabru, as the Iraqi government continues its efforts to improve peace, security, and governance, I hope you know that you can count on USIP to be a partner in this effort. And with that, allow me to turn things over to our very capable director of Middle East programs, Mr. Sarhang Hamasaid, to introduce and moderate the conversation with the ministers. Before doing that, I want to thank Sarhang and the Middle East program team, Lee Tucker, Yamna Hanley, and Jenna Fisher, for the work in bringing this event to fruition. And I also want to thank the ABT, AV staff and the interpreters for their contributions too. Now, over to you, Sarhan. Thank you, Mike, for your remarks and your thoughtful insights. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, depending uh, on where you are. Uh, my name is Sarhan Hamasaid. I'm Director of Middle East Programs here at USIP. It is an honor for me to moderate the discussion with our distinguished panelists uh, His Excellency uh, Minister Khaled Najm and um, uh, Minister uh, Ivan uh, Jabro. Uh, to start off, we will have remarks by both ministers, followed by uh, followed by a moderated discussion, including questions from the uh, audience. So we invite you, our audience, to take part in this event by asking questions through the questions and answers box under the live stream on the USIP uh, event page uh, or the live stream on Facebook. You can also engage with us and each other on Twitter uh, with hashtag IraqMinisters at USIP. Uh, we'll do our best to get to as many uh, of your questions as possible. So uh, a few more, uh, we'll start with uh, Minister uh, Najm, uh, who was confirmed as Iraq's Minister of Planning in May 2020. Uh, prior to his role, he was uh, the president of Anbar University uh, from March 2017 through September 2020. Minister Najm has also held um, a variety of positions, including a chairman and member of a, many advisory and consulting teams to oversee the implementation of infrastructure projects in various governors of Iraq. Minister Najm, it is a pleasure to host you uh, here at USIP. Uh, over to you. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us virtually. Good morning or good evening, wherever you are. And I want to thank the USIP who allowed for this virtual meeting to occur. And we will give you precisions about the situation in Iraq. First of all, when it comes to this place, my colleague, Minister of Migration and Displacement, will mention these topics. I personally will talk about general issues relating to the displaced, security, 
services, health services, education services, and stability, and all that having an impact on the return of the displaced and impacting the Iraqi society as a whole. The current government, as you know, came after a lot of suffering and difficult circumstances in Iraq following the protests of the population, the youth who were asking for service jobs, and these are supposed to be rights. So there shouldn't be demonstrations to ask for services and jobs. But once again, of the many changes in Iraq since 2003 and the many problems and obstacles that we faced, and if we want to be transparent and realistic, we know that Iraq encountered very harsh circumstances in 2004, 5, 7, violence was all over Iraq, and no, probably that. And we sometimes almost reached the brink of a civil war. Then we had a transition area with stability at the security level. Also, a fall in the oil prices has an impact on the services provided to the citizens. Then we had ISIS or Daesh, and you know the story. We started a war mainly of attrition because Iraq was financially exhausted and many martyrs were provided by Iraq to free the land. And we still face security problems here and there because of the fact that some terrorist group groups remain. Then in 2019, protests and demonstrations by you started and the government of Mr. Adel Abdel resigned. And two respectable persons, Mr. Alawi and Mr. Al-Zurbi, were nominated to form a government, but eventually failed and withdrew. Now the Prime Minister Mr. Al-Qazim, and he was the last, in fact, when he was nominated to form a government. So after selecting the ministers, the government prepared a plan that was by the parliament about the role of the government, because it was an exceptional government that was formed within security, political, and economic circumstances that were very difficult. So again, the parliament voted on the plan, which first priority was closing the file of the displaced, organizing elections, and bringing security and economic stability. Again, my colleague will talk about the displacement file. As for the elections, the government is serious and want to follow on its commitment to the people, to the parliament and the international community by organizing the elections. Prime Minister had a proposal about holding the elections last year in June, but the High Commission for the elections was not ready. So we suggested October of the 2021. And now we are working 
in order to prepare the logistics for the elections. The government carried on on all its promises. If you don't know, in Iraq, we have an independent commission for the election, and the government does not interfere in the work of the commission unless the commission requests financial or logistic support. And the government is providing all the support that requested from him. And the commission is moving forward, and hopefully we will have the elections in October 10 of the second file was to work with the protesters successful through dialogue conviction to end the protests. The government only used force in very few cases because of individual clashes. But as a whole, protesters understood the role and the obligations of the government, and we were able to reach a convincing solution in order to keep moving forward. Another file economy. In the first meeting of government, we discussed the means to pay the salaries to the government employees, because when we came to power, this was not possible, neither paying the salaries of those working within the government or the pensions for the retired. So, support for the agriculture. Parallel to this, regretfully, we had the COVID-19 pandemic and the sharp fall in oil prices. And the government, until now, is not having a full schedule attendance for the employees, only 50 to 75 percent. So the employees are not back to the normal schedule, and many programs have reported because of the pandemic. And many times, ministries had to be completely closed because of the number of COVID cases. And this is having a negative impact on the achievement of the government. How much time do I have, Mr. Sarhan? One or, or two more minutes. Well, I want also to talk about foreign relations and the achievements of the government at this level. With the previous government, the situation of international relations was tense with many countries, but we were able to improve the situation, to work out problems. And at this point, Iraq has balanced relations with the neighboring countries and the international community. And we are also forward with our relations with our Arab and non-Arab neighbors. And we will soon be having, as a result, a summit in Baghdad for Arab leaders. We also had visits by many Arab officials, and we visited as well 
neighboring countries. We opened up to the international community and international organizations present and working in Iraq. So because of Daesh and ISIS, as we know, we inherited 6,000 programs who had to be halted. In 2020, despite the fact that we did not have a budget or financial allocations, but through credits, we were able to restart these programs or projects because we know that during the demonstrations, the protesters were asking for services and these services will not be available if not resume these projects that were halted in 2014 and 2015 because of the war with Daesh. And I will give you one example. We had a commission ordered to restart the work of the government hospitals. We were able, out of 52 hospitals, to start again the work in 30 hospitals. And the Ministry of Health is operating these hospitals and will also be contracting private company to manage these hospitals. So since I'm running out of time, thank you very much for listening. That's it for me. Shukran. Saadat Wazir. Benisbati li al-musharikin. Hada al-liqa yubathu mubasharatan bil-lugha al-arabiya wa bil-lugha al-ingiliziya. And I'm going to repeat that in Arabic, just in case for those who are watching on this. مشاهدينا الاعزاء في بث مباشر باللغه الانجليزيه وباللغه العربيه لهذا الحدث على موقع المعهد الاسلامي وسايتي.org على موقع على صفحه هذا الايفنت فلو تحبون ان تشاركون في النقاش عن طريق البث العربي موجود والبث الانجليزي موجود ببثين مختلفين شكرا uh, so now coming back to um, uh, Her Excellency, uh, uh, Minister uh, Ivan Jabru, um, she was confirmed as Minister uh, of Migration and Displacement in the Kalvani uh, government in June 2020. As Minister, she also heads the High Council for Humanitarian Affairs in the government, which is an interagency body uh, working on displacement issues and more. Uh, Ms. Jabro is no stranger to USIP. We have uh, had the pleasure of working with her in her capacity in civil society, as uh, Mike also mentioned. Um, she also served as Nineveh Governorate Advisor for Minority Affairs, head of the Chaldean um, Association in Basra, member of uh, Nineveh's um, Consultative Women Council, and, and many more institutions. Um, Mr. Jabro, it's really a pleasure to have you back at USIP. Um, over to you. Ladies and gentlemen, let me greet you all. As the minister said, there are many files that the government is concentrating on, but the pri priority was given to the displacement. And the government dealt with this file very seriously, despite the many crises, especially the economic 
crisis and the pandemic. But the government moved forward on this file and wanted to allow all the displaced to voluntarily go back to their places of origins. So there was a plan that was set with our ministry that was adopted by the government and that we are implementing now. There is also the emergency plans that our ministry adopted following visits on the ground to the majority of the camps that existed at that time. We carried a survey to know who is willing to return. We had forms that all displaced living in camps had to fill. And according to the results of the survey, the majority of the displaced living in camps wanted to voluntarily go back to their places of origin. But when the right circumstances, circumstances were available in the places of origin. So we worked with the different concerned ministries, with the security forces more specifically that worked with us to provide security. Because previously we had problems to deal with the security forces, but at this point we moved forward as quickly as possible. Previously, this was a problem for the return of the refugees because it took lots of time to allow for the return. But ever since we worked this situation, many have been returning despite problems. And we also worked with international organizations and the current government and the Prime Minister through special committees like the tribes worked with the USIP to work out the problems in the camp, the places of origin, and to allow for the displaced to go back. We also allowed for dialogues with the head of tribes and clans. We also have many problems relating to the infrastructures that many governments worked on in order to rehabilitate the infrastructures, rebuild, destroyed houses. We also worked with an international organization that supported our ministry and that approves of the plan of the ministries. So far, we have only two remaining camps, one in Ninawa and one in Al-Anbar at Amiriyat Al-Fallujah. And people also from these two camps are starting to return to their homes. There is Al-Jad'a Center Social Rehabilitation for those who are coming back from the Al-Hol refugee camps. And this is temporary. They would need to be rehabilitated and then reintegrated in their local community. We still have also 26 camps in the Kurdish province, the majority of which are minorities. But it is the KRG that is responsible for these camps. Our ministry is only providing support to the province's government the Kurdish provinces government and their administration are in charge of the camps. We only provide support because we have 
no decision to make at this point. So we coordinate with uh, KRG. That's it for me. Thank you. Thank you, Your Excellencies. I think, um, uh, Dr. Khaled, you laid out three important uh, priorities for the government. Uh, that uh, the first one was the uh, the issues of internally displaced persons, uh, a, a big challenge for the government of Iraq and the international community as it tries to help uh, Iraq. And uh, thank you, Minister uh, Jabru, for talking about the national plan that the Council of Ministers adopted uh, in March of, uh, of this year. It is an important document that provides an assessment of the type of issues, security, economic, social, infrastructure, etc., and the type of necessary solutions and recognizing the importance of community involvement and participation. And that implementation takes place at the local level, uh, and it will require efforts from different government, non-government, and international agencies. It's really a, a, good, uh, a good document. What I want to ask both of you, uh, can you speak I mean, about the challenge of implementation? So now you have a plan, um, and Iraq passed a national budget. So budget was, and pay, paying for these things have been a challenge for the government of Iraq. Can you talk a little bit more about who is leading the coordination uh, of the implementation of this plan? How is this plan uh, paid for? And how are you monitoring uh, the success uh, of the plan? Thank you very much. The plan, of course, clearly showed the commitment, the commitment of the government, as you said yourself, and all ministries dealing with services have a part to play. So the plan starts with projects, and according to the plan, there was a division of different areas with the needs of each area. For instance, Tinjar and what it needs in the plain of Ninawa, Anbar, Salahuddin, Diyala, North Baghdad, etc. So each region with the needs that are typical to this region. And then since the budget was adopted for 2021, was an allocation of 25 billion Iraqi dinars to start implementing our projects. So we will have either the Council for the rebuilding process or the government of the local provinces who will be in charge of implementing these projects. And of course, we are cooperating with the local government, but also with the Ministry of Migration and Displacement in order to start the implementations. Now, when it comes to the displacement, we have the allocation, financial allocation provided by the government, but we also worked with the local governments, especially in the provinces where the displaced yet did not return to start implementing important projects, but this, of course, needs time. That's for the project. Now, after the projects are implemented, for instance, if we are building a school, when the school is built, we will hand over the school to the Ministry of Education, 
which will provide the teachers, the cadres, and so on. If we have a project that is completed, we also hand it over to the ministry in charge. For instance, a police headquarters that will be handed over to the Ministry of Interior. So our ministry makes the projects are completed and then hand over the rest of the projects to the services ministries. I hope my question is clear. Yeah. If I may ask um, uh, Minister Ivan to, to uh, uh, comment on the cooperation with the international community on the implementation. Is your ministry coordinating this effort? Do you receive the support uh, that you need from the international community or do you have areas where you need support from the international community? Well, of course, we need a huge support from the international community because we are facing any financial crisis within the ministry and within the government as a whole. Now, the current government has a vision. It wants to close the file. It wants a voluntarily return of the displaced, but it also wants the international and regional and local organizations to concentrate on the places of return and not on the camps. So we have lots of support, but we need more support. We need more coordination, cooperation with the government, with the ministries, order for us to be able to allow for all the displaced to return and close the file, definitely. Thank you. Thank you. So um, I have two related questions. Um, I'll get to Al-Hol um, in a second, but um, uh, uh, as you know, the, uh, the government of Iraq takes pride that it put together this implementation plan and it had uh, made progress on uh, closing down the camp. So there's a positive story that the government of Iraq sees, that the political leader sees, uh, but also there is some uh, comments from the international community that they say, okay, while it's positive news that to, to close the camps, but the uh, circumstances were not ready for, the, for those people to return and uh, that the, um, uh, the return, uh, the government of Iraq stresses that return is, is voluntary, should be voluntary, but those people did not have a choice in closing the camps and some of them have challenges in returning to their areas of, um, uh, of return. I saw some answers to this issue in the, in the, implement, uh, in the national plan, but I would like to uh, give you the opportunity to comment uh, about how do you understand the issue of voluntary return, um, and uh, can you speak to that? Well, as we said, we supported the voluntary return. Nothing is imposed or forced when it comes to the closing of the camp as well. So we close the camp and we work on the reintegration of the displaced. Now, we still have the two camps in Anbar and Mosul, and those two camps were facing very intricate problems. This is why they are still open, but we are working with the government, with the international community, to find a solution to all the problems and allow for the displaced to voluntarily and securely go back. 
to their homes. Now, there are lots of misleading information and inaccurate information that the government is hearing and also lots of international community. I mean, many donor organizations they said would want to keep the camps open because it is some sort of a business. And also some local activists or local workers working with international organizations are providing misleading information. And some say that if the displaced leave the camps, they will lose their livelihood. So lots of misinformation is going on. And we are in the era of technology, of social and there are lots of things that we hear on the social media are inaccurate. So I would request the international organization to visit the government, the families that went back to their homes and to ask them if their lives was better in the camps, despite the fact that no dignified life is possible in the camps, or if its life is better in the places of origins to where they return. Now, again, some families, because of many problems, were not able to return to their home places, so we allowed them to choose any other place they were willing to go to. And we are following on the situation of these families, thanks to the committees that were formed by the ministry and the government, and also with the support of the international community. Thank you, uh, Your Excellency. We have some questions coming up uh, that would be directed uh, uh, to the Minister uh, of Planning, but I'll hold off on that for now. Uh, because I want to uh, address a couple of other angles about the issues of displacement, then go back to elections and the uh, economic stability of the country. Just staying with election, uh, sorry, with uh, with, our, uh, with the IDPs um, and the displacement and refugees, uh, a key concern that the international community and Iraqi leaders have been talking about is the future of the Iraqis in that whole camp uh, in northeast uh, Syria. Uh, there are an estimated amount of 30,000 um, uh, people there. So uh, my question to you, um, Excellencies, is that what is the status of the return of, uh, of the Iraqis in Al-Hol, and what are the future direction of that plan? Well, we had started in the beginning the process of return, but we had to stop because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, the National Security Advisory Committee is working on the security aspect, and our ministry want to transfer them first to the Jadha Center for social rehabilitation. And then they will be reintegrated in their communities of origin. More than 5,000 families were registered 
these families want to go back to the places of origins. And also for the majority of these families, there was a vetting process and it appeared that they have no relations with Daesh. The majority of the people returning are women and children who were the victims of Daesh. A few of these displaced were members of Daesh, either the father of a member of the family. But of course, we cannot condemn the wife and the children for the crimes of the father or the husband, because traditionally the woman follows her husband and has no choice at this point. So it is the duty of the Iraqi government to take care of its citizens anywhere. Of course, as long as they had no part in any terrorist attack or had no relations with Daesh. So we started bringing back family to the Jad'a Center for Rehabilitation. And we are working also with the USIP at this level. The majority of the tribes want their members to be back. In the local communities. So there are no insurmountable problems. But some political exploitations on the social media because the elections are getting close. So many are playing on sensitive, sensitive topics to exploit the topic for election purposes. But for us, it is only a humanitarian file. It has nothing to do with politics. But again, no one who was involved with Daesh can come to the Jada Rehabilitation Center. So, uh, thank you. Quick follow-up on that. So with uh, that big number, um, what is the timeline? Obviously, your government uh, uh, is also busy with the big elections coming up at an important milestone. What is possible before the elections and what is what do you think will be more after the elections for the next government? Well, first, we had 94 families. We also committee by our ministry and the Ministry of Planning and the National Security Advisory Committee, the Ministry of Social Affairs and Humanitarian Affairs in order to set a strategic plan on the long term for social rehabilitation. And we have six national organizations with the Ministry of Planning. And different organizations are working in the Jada Center to determine who is ready to be going back to places of origins after settling the problems in the region of origins. Now, there is no time frame about how long any person stays in the rehabilitation center. It depends on the cases. But following visits to the camp or the center, 
it appears that the situation is different from what we see in the media. Now, the people in the Al-Hol camps were victims of Daesh. They faced lots of violence, exploitation of women and children. So it is a duty of the Iraqi government to support all Iraqis in Iraq and abroad. Um, thank you. Thank you, Your Excellency. So we have um, a question, if I may ask, uh, also uh, Dr. Khaled, if he wants to comment on this, is about reintegration. Uh, obviously, uh, there is the, the, the people who have returned, who are returning from, uh, from Al Hol. Uh, there are people uh, who are displaced inside Iraq and also going back to their community. Um, and uh, Minister Ivan spoke about reintegration a little bit, but I want to also, uh, in your capacity as minister, if you have any uh, views you want to uh, weigh in on about how to reintegrate uh, these returnees. Yes, of course. As my colleague said, setting a time frame for the return is very difficult because there are lots of circumstances that have an impact on the time frame. But yesterday and before, we talked with different organizations working in Iraq and with a specialized center in Iraq University, and we seek the support of the international community and of organizations working on both social and psychological rehabilitation. Because we have a social and psychological problem with displaced returning from the Al-Hol camp, aside from the security problems. So if a member of the family was fighting with Daesh, the rest of the family is not responsible for that fact. And we cannot also punish people for their ideas. So we need a social and psychological rehabilitation and a reintegration in the local communities. This is why we need to work with international centers who deal with this kind of problems or rehabilitation. We want to benefit from the experience of countries that witnessed similar situations, of course, not necessarily Daesh, but something similar. How to deal with the psychological rehabilitation with uh, victims and children. One more point about returning willingly or being forced to turn. There is no government in the world that can provide for the needs of everyone. Now, if we have a camp with 5,000 families and five or six families only do not want to leave the camp or go back to the places of origins, do not want to be integrated in another camp, so we'll, it doesn't make sense to keep a camp open because four, five, 15, 20 families out of 5,000 want to stay because the camps also need services, need support, needs financing, and so on. So if some people do not want to go back to the places of origins, do not want to be integrated in another camp, so the government has no options. We cannot keep the whole camp open because a few families want it. 
And as the minister said, once again, we have, we are calling on all those who are willing to come with us, go to the places of origins to visit displaced families who are able to return. We will organize the logistics and they will ask these families if they decided to go back or were forced to go back. And they will be asked also about the situation that they face in the camp and the situation they are facing in their local community. We have to be realistic, not only talk about theories. We are talking about practical, realistic situations. We have an example in the province that were freed from Daesh, and more specifically, Al-Anbar. When Ramadi was liberated, the families wanted to go back immediately. But the central government and the local government were hesitant. And I was the dean of the University of Al-Anbar, and I was reluctant. But then we decided to go back, despite the fact that in some area, the security was not 100%. There were also mines or other problems. But again, the central government does not have the economic means to rebuild all the liberated areas within months. And the same applies to the international community. So it is not easy to start returning the displaced. The inhabitants of the social communities do much more than the government or the international community. So in some areas, the families went back, but if they don't go back and start rebuilding themselves, because the situation in Iraq is very clear at the security level, financial level, economic level, social level, and so on, the government now does not have the capabilities to rebuild all the houses in the best possible way and then tell the displaced, come back, everything is fine. I mean, many Iraqis also were martyred or suffered and are in their own places and do not have all the services that need to be requested. And this is my case too. I come from a difficult area, but the displaced need to know that they are better placed than anybody to find solutions to their problems. Now, for instance, a family of five, five men, shouldn't stay in the camp. They need to go back to their places and start working and start providing for their families. And the government allows for the displaced, if they do not want to go to their places of origins, to go to another city or another place. Five men can, of course, provide for the families instead of waiting for the support provided by the Iraqi government or international organizations because as we know also the number of people in the camps is increasing 
women are pregnant, women are having children. This is why the government was very realistic and it's doing its job. We know that we have responsibilities. We do not wait for voices or contractants with different organizations to tell us what to do. With all due respect to the efforts of the international community and the international organizations that have been supporting us and still are, especially for the displaced. But we concentrate on the main problem and we know what our people needs more than anyone. So we have uh, received a good number of questions from the different platforms where our viewers are watching. I just wanted to flag for uh, Ahmed, who asked on the USIP website about um, uh, housing and reconstruction. The, His Excellency Dr. Khalid answered that um, earlier in his uh, answer to another question that uh, his ministry and the Ministry of Migration and Displacement lay the policies, then the specialized ministries uh, are responsible for the implementation of those projects and it requires budget allocation um, uh, by the government and uh, at the federal at the, and the provincial levels. And also to uh, uh, Spencer McMaster, um, who asked uh, on link, LinkedIn, that I, we, I put your question to the minister about reintegration and he uh, answered that. Um, I want to go to another question uh, from Oday, who is asking a question to uh, uh, Ms. Ivan. And uh, he's asking how many Iraqis are displaced uh, uh, outside Iraq? Can you uh, assess the situation of the Iraqi refugees in Syria? And I would like also to add the Iraqi refugees in Turkey. Well, we have huge numbers of Iraqis displaced abroad and they are in different countries. And there is an ongoing process of return, especially in Turkey, where it is easier. Because we had a delegate of our ministry working in our embassy in Turkey. So during the last year, 800 refugees were able to return from Turkey and we provided transportation by land or by air through the Iraqi means. From Syria, we have fewer numbers returning. Many do not want to return. 30 families went back so far, but we are providing all the means to bring back those who are willing willing to return and anybody who wants to return can get in touch our ministry and the international organization also can help registering the names of the families willing to return and the ministry is committed to returning them immediately to the places of origin to provide the transportation free or for free Thank you. So one thing that uh, uh, Minister Najm mentioned that I think that's very important uh, about ideology and about people's thinking that the law is not bar bar barring uh, uh, the ideology, it's about um, uh, uh, freedom and about a number of things. And the, in the international community and the people who are trying to uh, help Iraq, 
the issue of ISIS's ideology has been talked about a lot. Um, and uh, there are two, two key concepts that people are grappling with. One talks about de-radicalization, uh, de uh, which research and um, experts say it's very difficult to get people out of people's heads. Uh, and the most important and practical thing is to talk about disengagement from violence. Is that how not to let people to act uh, or people not acting on their ideology. So they may have strong views or extreme views, but not acting on this violently through terrorist acts is the, uh, is the important thing and measurable thing to work on. Um, the other thing that uh, uh, you refer to in, in, in different ways is that you are trying not to put a stigma uh, on innocent people who are who have been displaced because of the conflict, and that's why you are calling it a Jada'a center, not a Jada'a camp. That's why you are not using certain terminologies. So, uh, and I understand the issue of perception to be ISIS is a big problem in the Iraqi society. It's a security concern, um, and it requires uh, probably a change in attitude. Uh, and it's a it's a it's a sensitive topic where. Uh, it's, it's an election season. Many leaders may not want to talk about that publicly. Um, do you, can you offer any thoughts uh, about how to go about this issue of stigma? Um, how, can, how can that be prevented so that uh, the, the community and the society can have a healthy uh, uh, discussion about this and uh, address this problem so that it does not become a long-term problem? Thank you very much. A very important question. Let me go back to what I said previously. Those who adopt a radical ideology in specific circumstances can be rehabilitated. This is what we are trying to do. And we have a specific program called Al-Munasaha in Saudi Arabia, which is about providing advisors back and forth. And I visited Saudi Arabia and we talked about that. This happens when a person is arrested. We're talking about adults. And the Saudis said that this program was quite successful in the kingdom because they were able to change the life of radicalized people that were integrated in the society. We have practical examples. And I said that I am from the areas. We had people who were radicalized between 2005, 2007, and they were imprisoned, but now they are reintegrated in their society in a very good way. Those who can get over the stigma is the person who was radicalized because this person abandoned its ideology and is very candid about it and speaks freely about it. And they would say, for instance, I was convinced wrongly that this was the right ideology, but now I'm free from the ideology and I'm facing it and I'm fighting it. So we need to provide a platform for these people to talk about their experience locally and potentially internationally, because allowing them to speak freely 
is the best defense for them. He will talk to the people freely. He would say, I used to adopt these extreme ideas, but now I need to state that I was wrong. And there will be a positive impact, not only on the person herself, but also on other people who adopted radical ideologies. And this will discourage people who are lured by radical ideologies to change minds because they have the experience of someone who followed the ideologies and then came back to read. So we need to concentrate on these examples. I don't want to give names because it's an open meeting, but some people adopted radical ideologies in 2005, 2006. Today, they are political analysts. They are in Iraq, they have posts in the government, and they clearly recognize that at some point they were radicalized and that they now recognize that they were mistaken. Thank you, Your Excellency. I think this is a very, very important point that you are raising that people who may have had an idea at a certain point, uh, they can change their thinking, they can change their behavior, people, uh, there are things that they can do on themselves uh, to show that they are, they, they have changed, but also there is uh, some work for the community to accept them, to help them as in, in that process of change. And I can uh, speak to that from the work of the U.S. Institute of Peace uh, in Iraq, working with the tribal leaders. Uh, they are playing an important role with the religious leaders, with civil society leaders. They have been playing an important role in helping uh, the community to accept them. And that's a challenge that I think both the government of Iraq and the other stakeholders um, could uh, continue to work uh, on. Uh, I have more questions if I, uh, from our uh, viewers. Um, uh, uh, I think we have some questions focused on the Iraqi minorities uh, from uh, Jillian uh, Dare or Dari, I apologize if I'm uh, mispronouncing uh, your name. Uh, the question says, basically the comment says, minority communities in Iraq, um, in Northern Iraq, tell us that there has been no improvement in security. And also they are not benefiting from the government of Iraq or international community assistance. Uh, why is this? Um, and uh, and they, they also say, ask, uh, uh, will you implement uh, Article 140 in disputed territories, which is uh, crucial for the returnees? Well, to the contrary, we moved forward a lot, lots of progress, especially in Ninawa, I'm talking about the Christians. Many displaced were back in the Casa of Hamdaniya, for instance, in Karakosh as well. In Telkaif, many Christian families are back. But there are lots of challenges in some areas that were destroyed. But we know that the Committee of for Reconstruction is rebuilding the area. In Sinjar, so far, the return remains very slow. 
for the Yazidis because Sinjar was destroyed to almost 80%. Now we have the Reconstruction Committee, many organizations, international organizations are supporting reconstruction process and the return process in Sinjar. Now we have an improved security situation with some clashes between some parties. And this is the case in the hook as well and to the north of the hook. But I visited Sinjar myself more than once. The Iraqi army is present and nobody else. But the services are not systematically available. So we need support. So, we need from the minorities also not to be victimized all the time and feeling that they are victims and they need to be part of the whole state. So everyone knows that I was in Mosul under Daesh and I had to sleep in the streets for many days and we faced dire situations. We tried to fight this ideology. But we also contributed, contributed in the rebuilding of the country in fighting this radical ideology. So I need to be part of the rebuilding of the country. I need to be part of fighting the extreme ideology. We know that the minorities face absolutely horrendous situation, especially the Yazidis. But they also proved their resilience and they proved that they are an integrated part of Iraq today. But whether the Christians or the Yazidis or the Shabaks or others need to be supportive of one another and to work together and to move beyond our internal differences. We need to be a unified force need to have a common vision. We know we need to avoid any politicization, to reject any attempt at dividing us. We need to preserve our identity and our country. Thank you. Uh, I have some specific questions um, uh, from, uh, again, from uh, Chilean and from uh, uh, from Intisar. Uh, one is related to uh, uh, psychosocial support uh, to uh, the, 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 the displaced people, especially in the areas of the minorities. Uh, what, what more can you do in terms of providing uh, psychosocial support uh, to, those, to those groups? And then there is the other question related to this. Um, sorry, it's in Arabic, so I'm translating in my mind as I um, uh, speak the question, uh, answer the question, which says, 
um, uh, uh, Halimun organization is working on, on training uh, and uh, vocational skills uh, and uh, free illiter illiteracy programs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, uh, so, how, how, who, who would be the right agency uh, to work with if if there are organizations who want to help? Do they come to the ministry? Do they go to the provincial uh, governments, to the governor? Who do they go to to coordinate and offer uh, those support programs? When it comes to social and psychological rehabilitation, we know that this is a fundamental concept in the camps or the centers abroad. And this is what I witnessed when I visited these camps. We need this rehabilitation at this point, the camps. This is very important. But we do not, of course, interfere in these decisions. The decision goes back to the Ministry of Interior. But again, we requested international organizations and provision, provincial government to prepare programs in the camps for a social and psychological rehabilitation that is dispensable. As for the central government, federal government, through the Ministry of Migration, the Ministry of Work and Social Security, and the Ministry of Social Affairs, and the Ministry of Health, we work on social rehabilitation, on providing medical support, especially for the survivors. And we are preparing also the cadres in order to move forward. We already welcomed 25 surviving women two months ago, and now 10 more. And we are concentrating on the psychological rehabilitations for the Christian, the Yazidi, the Shabaks, or anyone who needs such support or the rehabilitation, psychological or social. But as a government, as a whole, and as a ministry as well, I need to confirm that there is a social and psychological rehabilitation. And regretfully, many of these programs were not available for the displaced in the camps, despite the fact that they needed this kind of rehabilitation, not only for those who are radicalized, but because of their sufferings from the radical ideas, because they were persecuted, because they lost their dignified life. So they need to be rehabilitated psychologically. And I need to insist, this is very important for women and children. And now we are working with the national organization to work with those who returned as well, meaning not only in the camps, because the people who returned, Sinjar, for instance, there is a huge need for these programs. And I asked you, Sarhang, 
and you said that USIP do not work on psychological rehabilitation, but rather on dialogue and plans and studies. So through the USIP, I asked all organizations working in the camps in the Kurdish province, and more specifically on the hook, to concentrate on this kind of rehabilitation. That's very important. As for your second question about civil society organizations, international organizations, they can deal with NGOs, the Ministry of Planning. And if they work on development, they can work also with the Ministry of Planning because we have in the ministries also teams in charge of working with these NGOs. They just have to be in touch with the Ministry of Interior to be registered in order to be able to move freely, and we do not interfere with their jobs. We facilitate their work, and of course, we make sure that their programs do not interfere with some projects or programs implemented by the government. I will come to you next um, about uh, I have a question about elections, then about economic stability. But just one quick question uh, uh, that I have here from Salah Abdurrahman for uh, Minister Ivan. Uh, where the question says, what is the Ministry of Migration doing for the situation of the children born out of rape by ISIS uh, fighters during the conflict, um, uh, especially with regard to uh, the challenges their families uh, encounter to register them? Yes. First, we are working on providing them all their needs. But when it comes to IDs, we have a committee in the Ministry of Interior working on this file. They work with the registration process and they coordinate with the Ministry of Justice. Thank you. So uh, I have a question, uh, I think it is from O'Day, uh, uh, is asking, um, uh, will the elections take place uh, in October as planned? And uh, do you think it were the biometric registration for all the, um, uh, uh, the voters will be complete by then? Yes, indeed. The government. Well, let me give you some details. The government suggested a date for the elections, and its job is to provide the logistic support, the financing, and there are already allocation for the independent high commission. And it also provides the logistics support. But the decisions otherwise go back to the High Commission. And according to the law, 
the government cannot interfere in the job of the High Commission. So, yes, the elections will happen on October 10th, and we will have international observers. We had a clear decision in the government requesting an international observers because we want the elections to be fair and credible and we want the results to be accepted by the Iraqi people and the international community because these are important elections. As for the biometrics card, from a legal perspective, the election law is clear. We have electronic non-biometric cards that will be accepted because we do not have time, enough time, to provide biometric cards to all. So, because we need to modernize the data. And we cannot force the citizens to vote or to request a voter ID. But we are working on encouraging people, especially those working in the government, to request the voter ID. And this is very important. Because we do not want some cards to be used illegally. And this, of course, will impact the credibility of the elections. Thank you, Your Excellency. So when most people talk about stability in Iraq, usually Iran, Turkey, uh, ISIS, armed groups, uh, all these kind of issues come up. Uh, but not many people uh, like you, Minister, uh, see some of the internal uh, challenges. Um, uh, we had the opportunity to discuss with you in uh, other conversations about the challenge of population growth uh, to Iraq's um, government and Iraq's stability, and also the challenge of poverty. Uh, so can you please speak about how do you see the issue of uh, population growth? What are the numbers and how is that creating a challenge uh, for the government of Iraq? Uh, Yes. First, when it comes to stability and security, let me be very candid with you. The government was very wise, say, in dealing with the internal situation and with international relations. Because as I said, this government had duties. And we wanted to be very cautious or wise in dealing with the problems to have a minimum stability and to be able to organize the elections and to have a new government following elections that are acceptable to all Iraqis and the new government will make decisions concerning the security situation. Now about the growth, population growth. There are more than 40 million people in Iraq. We have one new million every year, and this number is increasing, of course. And the problem that shouldn't be theoretically a problem, but is a problem, 
in Iraq is about the age distribution of the population. 65% of the Iraqis are less than 30 years old. And we have a huge workforce age 15 to 65. So the government is facing many challenges in providing job opportunities, for instance. On the other hand, is there a solution to the problem? As you know, you have religious beliefs because many Iraqi believe and we respect this belief that we cannot support or deny but many Iraqis are against family planning. Sometimes it's even taboo to talk about this issue. So we are trying to board the problem, to deal with the problem in a very wise way in order not to anger some religious leaders or some rural communities, especially some believes that a family with limited children has a problem. And we have the problem of and marrying many women in order to have a boy or more boys instead of having only girls. So these are social traditions that we cannot ignore when we talk about the government decisions. It's not only about making decisions, it's about being able to implement them. So in Iraq, an average family has 7.7 .7 members, which is huge compared with the capabilities of Iraq. At the geographic level, and I'm talking average, in the most poor areas, the number of children is higher or the highest compared to poor areas. In the southern province, in Diwaniya, for example, and less so in Nasiriya, we have high average in Ninawa, 37% poverty, and in Baghdad, 12. This is for the average, but of course, when it comes to numbers, we have some 9 million people living in poverty in Baghdad compared to the Ninawa province, because what's important is not the average course, but the real figures. In Al-Muthanna, we have 52% of poor people, but of course the total number of inhabitants is 2 million. In Baghdad, 12% out of 9 million inhabitants means that 1 million people are poor in Baghdad. So how do we deal with the problem? First, need to have accurate statistics, and this is important. But we expect to have a population census 
soon in order to better understand the geographical distribution, the gender distribution, ages, and so on, to be able to integrate these data in our plan. So, a population or survey is very important. At this point, our figures are the results of partial census or surveys and predictions as well as happened in many countries in the world. In Iraq, since 1987, we did not have a general census or survey of the population, had a partial one. We expected to have a survey or a census in 2020, but because of the pandemics, we had to postpone. This applies also to this year. After of the pandemics, when the health situation will stabilize, maybe in 2022, we will have a survey. Thank you very much, um, uh, Your Excellency. Definitely. Uh, a million people a year, 2.5% of the population growing adds a lot of pressure and burden to the government that is challenged already with many difficult uh, portfolios. Um, and uh, so talk has been, there's been a lot of talk about uh, diversifying the Iraqi economy as a way of creating job opportunities. There has been talk about how reconstruction in the, uh, in the liberated areas could help uh, with facilitating the return, um, uh, the return of the displaced population and, and finding job opportunities there and help those areas grow. And a key uh, component of talking about reform has been the white paper of the government of Iraq. Can you please talk uh, a little bit about um, yeah, the progress of the implementation of the white paper and some general lines of, of the paper? Yes, indeed. The white paper, as you know, and as your viewers or listeners know, was adopted by the government. It's about a series of policies that needs implementation programs. So we created a high commission to be in charge of those programs, and we have implementation committee or an executive committee and each ministry has team in charge of the implementation and we started by the nomination of al as in charge of the implementation three weeks ago and we will be opening all the economic files in all ministries they are already being discussed the idea is not about making decisions. The idea is about implementing the decisions. We need to have practical results. When we make a decision, we need tools to be able to implement the decision, and these tools should be positive. And of course, we will be facing main obstacles on the road, down the road. So, we decided to work at the lower level in the ministries to convince those working on these paper or white document or paper that this is absolutely indispensable. We have excellent 
paper that were prepared with the support of experts of international organizations. For instance, the policy for the private sector, the global national development plan, or the sustainable development plan, the population policies, many policies. The problem again is, so going back to the white paper, some programs are already available and some are being written. But if I want to be clear and fair and candid, it is also about the economic situation. We have this document to reform the economic situation, but we also depend on the economic situation in Iraq that is dependent on the oil prices. If the oil prices are low, there will be a problem and will have an impact on all levels. And if the oil prices are good, everything improves. So hopefully we'll have acceptable oil prices next two years so that we will be able to diversify our revenues. And the government has been in charge for less than a year, but already the non-oil revenue increased. But we need to increase them to 18 percent in the 2021 budget. But now we moved from 3 percent to 12 percent, you know, from customs and taxes and exports and so on. But what we need chiefly is ability and quite frankly as well, we need that next government, we need the next government to trust this paper or white document in order to be able to move forward. Uh, only just less than uh, uh, five minutes to end. I would like to uh, use a couple of minutes of that to ask Minister Ivan uh, and follow up on something you said uh, that how the Iraqi government has uh, good plans. And uh, I have read in the in the national uh, development plan about the importance of uh, women participation um, in, in the labor force, in the economy, in all matters of life. Uh, so many uh, special or specialized organizations, including the World Bank, commended the government of Iraq on the white paper, but they also mentioned that it is not addressing sufficiently the importance of uh, women participation. So, uh, Minister Ivan, as um, minister, uh, uh, how do you assess um, the participation of uh, women in the government and in uh, in in, in, li in economic life in Iraq? Uh, well, I'm going to talk especially about displaced women in the camps. Part of the white paper concentrate on this aspect as well. What we saw in the camps is that women are more exploited 
than able to produce. We worked with women organization. We worked with different agencies because we wanted to concentrate on displaced women. They play no role within the camps. They cannot provide anything for the families. They cannot even support their children. The only thing they do is buy and get the financial support and the food and so on. So women, women were hugely dependent on the government and international organizations. This is why we worked on programs with international organizations to allow women to be in charge of some projects that may bring revenue to the families, but not in the camp. And more than 30% of all programs are concentrating on women and empowering women in economic perspective. And some other organizations working with our ministry are not only empowering women from an economic perspective, but at all levels, including the political participation, and this is very important. And one comment, if I may. Women in Iraq are empowered. They don't need empowerment. They control the houses, the families, and we have four women ministry in the government, ministry of reconstruction, ministry of state, and also women in charge of investments. And as an average, Iraqi ministries, I mean, I don't have accurate figures. As a whole, women are very well represented. For instance, in the planning ministry, we have 48% of women in our global employees. This is something we do not find in any country elsewhere. We have four women, director general, and also deputy ministers. We also have a department for empowering women. And we also have the consultative committee to empower women. But from an economic perspective, we need more time to empower women. But I quite confidently say that women are very well represented in the government and in the business circles in the private sector, in the council working on the private sector. One thing I need to add, we are three women in the government and Ms. Suha, let's say four. We have a total freedom of expression and all the ministers understand our decisions 
and Prime Minister Mustafa Al-Qazimi providing us with his total support to empower women. He is allowing women to participate at many levels to express their opinions. And we benefited a lot from this in our ministries. In the Ministry of Migration and Displacement, also, we worked on providing women with the right posts. And we moved beyond some quotas that were in place in order to concentrate on the efficiency of women in different posts. And we also sent a letter thanking the Prime Minister for his support for women empowerment. And this is very important for us. Thank you, Your Excellencies. Uh, we have come, uh, come to the end of our time. Uh, I'm glad that we got to a good number of questions. Uh, thank you for answering those. Uh, I apologize to those who we did not have a chance to get to their questions. Um, I think in closing, it's important to recognize uh, some points. Uh, uh, Iraq continues to face a complex set of problems, uh, political security, socioeconomic, health, environmental, and geopolitical ones. But as we hear, heard from uh, our speakers, leaders in the government of Iraq, they are navigating these issues, um, providing leadership and partnership uh, during very difficult times in a government that many expected it to have a short-term mandate uh, of just getting the country out of a political crisis towards early election. But in reality, this government has been trying to do more than that, uh, laying the foundation for longer-term vision, reforms, and uh, solutions. I think it's healthy to point uh, out uh, the gaps in their efforts, but it's also important to recognize the burden they are dealing with. The current government still has some time to continue its charge forward, and hopefully uh, the upcoming elections will result in a government that will build on the direction and foundation of the current government, as His Excellency uh, uh, Dr. Najm uh, also mentioned. Um, and in that, it remains central to address the human legacy of the conflict with ISIS, while also maintaining sight of the fact that peace and stability in Iraq will be most durable uh, when they hinge uh, in major part on the Iraqi people, their well-being, their meaningful contribution in the economy and governance, uh, their feeling that the state is theirs to serve them and protect them. Uh, the Iraqis will continue to need uh, the support of the United States and the international community to achieve these goals. Uh, thank you, Minister uh, Khaled Najman, Minister Ivan Jabro, for joining us today uh, and the insightful conversation. We hope uh, to host you again uh, soon in person. Uh, and thanks, Ambassador Yassin and the team at the Embassy of Iraq uh, in Washington for your continued partnership in organizing such events uh, and more. And thanks to our viewers for tuning in. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.
Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.